You're listening to Visions of Education, a podcast where we take a look at big ideas in education from different perspectives. Hi, I'm Michael Milton, a high school teacher from Massachusetts. And I'm Dan Kretka, an education professor in Texas. We're here to help bridge the gap between educators in the K-12 and those professors in higher ed. We hope this podcast will help bring those fuzzy ideas in education into focus. Hey, Michael, how you doing? I'm doing great, Daniel. How are you? I'm pretty good. I spent a huge chunk of my time the other day watching a Senate confirmation hearing, and it has been a while since I've watched one. Probably since I taught government. You know, I taught government for four years, AP government and on-level government. And we used to watch all kinds of stuff like that back then. Was it exciting? Um, Was it like riding a bicycle? I appreciate the democratic process in whatever form it comes in. Now, I didn't feel like the confirmation hearings, the way they're run, feel particularly democratic. It feels really partisan. Obviously, the the big hearing for educators was the Betsy DeVos confirmation hearings. And so as I watched it, I was first and foremost just struck by how the senators kept arguing about how much time they had and who could say what. And then they would refer back to previous confirmation hearings. And it just felt like school children fighting. Actually, I'm sorry. That was an insult to school children. Oh. But, <laughs> but it felt it just this partisanship, I thought, was missing the point of we're trying to confirm potentially a secretary of education and those issues should take precedence and kids' interests should take precedence. And it just didn't feel like that between all the squabbling. So the five minute time limit, you weren't a fan? Yeah, I'm not a fan of the time limit. And I also just wasn't a fan of the interactions and how it took place. But so getting to the actual content of the confirmation hearing, there was one part that really struck me. There were several things that I think educators and the public should take an interest in. But there's a part when Tim Kaine was asking questions, and I'd actually love to play that clip and then discuss it a little bit, if that's okay with you. Yeah, that works for me. Do you think that schools that receive, K-12 schools that receive government funding should meet the same accountability standards, outcome standards? All schools that receive public funding should be accountable, yes. Should should meet the same accountability standards? Yes, although you have different accountability standards between traditional... Traditional public schools and charter schools, but I'm but I but I'm really interested in this. Okay, Should everybody well, be on a level playing field? So public public charter or private K twelve schools, if they receive taxpayer funding, they should meet the same accountability standards. Yes, they should be very transparent with the information, and parents should have that information first and foremost. And if confirmed, will you insist upon that equal accountability in any K twelve school or educational program that receives federal funding, whether public, public charter, or private? I support accountability. Equal accountability for all schools that receive federal funding. I support accountability. Okay, is that a yes or a no? That's a, I support accountability. Do you not want to answer my question? I support accountability. Okay, let me ask you this. I think all schools that receive taxpayer funding should be equally accountable. Do you agree with me or not? Well, they don't. They're not today. But I think they should. Do you agree with me or not? Well, no, because... You don't agree with me. Let me move to my next question. Should all K-12 schools receiving governmental funding be required to meet the requirements of the Individuals with Disabilities Education Act? I think they already are. Okay, so 
So, but, but I'm asking you a should question. Whether, whether they are or not, we'll get into that later. Should all schools that receive if, if schools taxpayer funding be required to meet the uh, requirements of the individuals with disabilities in education? I think that is a matter that's best left to the states. So states might, some states might be good to kids with disabilities and other states might not be so good and then what, people could just move around the country if they don't like other kids are being treated? I think that's an issue that's best left to the states. What about the federal requirement? It's a federal law, the Individuals with Disabilities Education Act. Let's limit it to federal funding. If schools receive federal funding, should they be required to follow federal law, whether they're public, public charter, or private? As the senator referred to... Um, Just yes or no. I've only Florida, got one more question. Florida program. Uh, there's many parents that are very happy with the program there. I think, let me state this. I think all schools that receive federal funding, public, public charter, or private, should be required to meet the conditions of the Individuals with Disabilities and Education Act. Do you agree with me or not? I think that is certainly worth discussion, and I would look forward to So you to cannot yet agree with me. And finally, should all K-12 schools receiving governmental funding be required to report the same information regarding instances of harassment, discipline, or bullying? if they receive federal funding? I think that federal funding certainly comes with strings attached. I think all such schools should be required to report equally information about discipline, harassment, or bullying. Do you agree with me or not? I would look forward to reviewing that provision. If it was a court, I would uh, say to the court, let the uh, judge instruct the witness to answer the question. It's not a court, you're not under oath, or you're not under a subpoena, but you're trying to win my vote. Thanks, Mr. Chair. Thanks, Senator Kane. Senator Murkowski. I thought you were going to play us the bear clip, Dad. Yeah, that got a lot of attention, but maybe isn't the most substantive issue that happened in the hearing. Yeah. What no, did you think about the clip? It's This is where I think that time limit that you're talking about is also an issue because I feel like some of her answers, I know that she might have been, she might have already gone over it, but it seemed like she had a little bit more to say. I mean, I realized that she seemed to be trying to like equivocate or, or um, obfuscate the answer, but I would have liked to have kind of hear her responses. I agree. Hearing more would have been better. But at the same time, I felt like these were some really simple like questions that are, are pretty central to some of the work our schools do. They do seem like they were softballs. Do you believe in the like the idea IDEA? That's something that I mean, as educators, we learn about in our education courses. I mean, heck, if you listen to our podcast, like what? three pot two podcasts ago we yeah. talked about this this is something that is not i mean it's it's federal law well and yeah the suggestion that states should get to choose over idea was a little problematic and i um is that was really worried is she, I, yeah I, that guess, seems I guess so interesting i was worried about kathleen i was worried about kathleen you know if she's going to be okay as you know from our episode 38 it's her favorite book to read is the idea legislation oh yes uh, yes <laughs> well so I think a key thing in, in really looking at a new Secretary of Education is what they've done up to this point. And so we have a great guest today who's, who's going to help us understand a little bit more about Betsy DeVos and her influence in Michigan. Welcome to the podcast, Allie Gross. Hi, how are you guys? We're great. Good. How Thank are you, you doing today? I'm doing well. It's, um, I'm in Michigan and it's actually pretty warm today. So that is mm. nice. I assume that Michigan is always snowing. I assume that too, but climate change, I don't know. It, it's pretty warm here today. <laughs> Ali, can you tell us a little bit about who you are in particularly your background in education, which is in reporting? 
I am a journalist and I like to focus on education stories, which I think is one of the reasons why I was asked to come on this podcast. That said, I actually, I used to be a teacher. And so I taught fifth grade language arts and social studies for three years at a charter school in Detroit. I came into teaching because I actually did Teach for America, which that could be its own podcast. And I'm sure you guys already have podcasts where you've discussed Teach for America. We haven't Nazi. discussed it, but yeah, we, <laughs> I do have friends who have also done the program. Okay. It's, so, it's probably on the agenda at some point, but yeah, we love that you have a background in education. I think that's so valuable to your reporting. Yeah. So I had studied journalism in college and I decided to do TFA somewhat naively. And I think that obviously core members, you only have five weeks of training. So I definitely went into the classroom pretty unprepared, I would say, in terms of being able to teach a classroom of 30 to 35 students. But more so, I was pretty unaware of what Detroit's education landscape looked like. And so my understanding when I came to Detroit in 2010 was that DPS schools, so Detroit public schools, were failing and that charter schools were kind of this solution. And so I actually pushed pretty hard to get placed at a charter school because I had heard that DPS was just falling apart. And my my parents who live in California, for some reason, they had told me that I should try to work at a charter school. So my parents who have no involvement in education, they had maybe seen Waiting for Superman that had just come out. There, there was definitely this rhetoric that charters were superior in a solution. And so it kind of just shows how even those who aren't necessarily involved in education can start to take in that rhetoric and, and start and to believe. Put it into their narrative. Put it into I, their narrative. Yeah. I think Dana Goldstein in her book, The Teacher Wars, which I use in my some of my early education classes, does a really good job of pointing out the dichotomies and narratives that exist around education. Yeah. And the very first one is that schools are broken. And once we accept that, then it's just looking for simple solutions to that, which okay. I always point out. I, you know, I taught my classroom never felt broken. My school definitely didn't feel broken. In fact, we had an incredible amount of success. And I always point out, you know, no one complains suburban schools are failing. And, totally. and there's a there's a reason for that, right? Yeah, I mean, I think 90, 90% of U.S. students attend a public school. And so it's kind of insane to say that public schools are dead ends, which is something that Ms. DeVos had mentioned at the hearing. So it kind of puts that into perspective. Anyway, I taught at my charter school for three years. I had a really positive experience with the teachers, my students. I, I really liked teaching a lot, but my school was very superficially. It seemed to be one of Detroit's premier schools based off just the facilities, the, the reputation it had, the marketing that it did. But in terms of the day-to-day with the school, I found it to be really chaotic. They would spend a lot of money on various consultants, but then kind of switch to a new consultant the next year. There was no real follow through. But the really big factor that turned me on to issues within my school was that my second year, our superintendent decided to leave the school because he got a job with the Skillman Foundation, which is a foundation in Detroit that does a lot of advocacy work around education. So he got this job running this program that they had called the Good Schools Resource Center. And I found that to be pretty 
peculiar considering my school didn't really have resources. Our students were by and large performing at the same level as the traditional public schools. So it didn't make sense that he was in charge of this multi-million dollar program and dictating what resources other schools should have. So that was at the end of my second year. My third year teaching, even though he had left and they had hired a new interim superintendent, this man was still very much involved on our campus and he would call meetings still. And I, I found this pretty peculiar because he had left and we had we were spending, I didn't know at the time, but I later found out over $100,000 on someone as a, a replacement for him. So it didn't really make sense. At one of the last gatherings uh, near the end of the school year of my third year, so the 2012-2013 school year, this former superintendent held a meeting. And at the meeting, I asked, just because I was frustrated and kind of over it, I asked if he was on payroll, on the payroll. And he said he was not. And I had to leave because I had a meeting with a parent upstairs. But on my way out, he kind of called me back. He didn't even know my name. I had been there for three years. And he's like, Lady in Red, actually, um, I'm not on payroll, but my consulting company is. So when I left the school, I sent in a Freedom of Information Act request to find out who this consulting company was, how much he was being paid, because it just felt very weird that we were in May of this year. And who was he consulting if teachers didn't even know about this contract? How None of it really made sense. So the FOIAs that I got back, we found out that he was making... I, he was making about sixty to $70,000 for six months of work. In, in that work, it was advising the school board. So really vague, ambiguous vague. tasks, pretty big chunk of money. I mean, my classroom didn't have, you know, paper. We didn't have a stapler. We didn't have a working pencil sharpener. So there were these, this discrepancy where this amorphous task was being given a pretty big chunk of money when very tangible needs within the classroom were not really being addressed. So that was pretty interesting to me. And that made me definitely start thinking more about the school system that was set up in Detroit. And if anything, it made me question the fact that my school, I almost look at charter schools as like a sovereign nation where each one is able to do essentially what they want. They're, they are accountable to their school board. And to their school board, who is then accountable to their authorizer, their sponsor. And so how is how a charter school spends their money, it's a little bit harder to track because there are so many of these sovereign nations, essentially. And uh, in Detroit, there are just so many charter schools. So it, so something like PEC, the school I was at, spending seventy or $80,000 on Mr. Kilgore for this amorphous task, you can then just begin to imagine how are other districts or charters in the city spending their money. And so I guess my initial interest in reporting on charter schools came from a goal of trying to bring some kind of financial accountability to the districts because my school was interesting in that our school board did all the contracting, but 80% of the management companies in Michigan are for profit. And so as soon as they have that contract, the money goes to them. And then that's like a black box. You can't FOIA a for-profit management company. You can FOIA a school board. But if a school board has a contract with a management company and all their per-pupil funding goes to the management company and the management company does the contracting on their own, 
it's very hard to follow the money. So I, I guess that gives you an, an entry point into to how yeah, that stimulus. That really helps to explain a lot just through your story. I also did not know that freedom of information existed as a word that was just a verb for you. Yes. So I'm very yeah. excited about learning that. Um, <laughs> so you learned so, so much on the Visions of Ed podcast. <laughs> right. I'm not an expert on charters, but a lot of the original intent from charters actually came from people who were very highly associated with public schools like Al Schenker, and they wanted charters as places where you could experiment and try new things that could potentially be taken to other schools. But we have a lot of charters that don't really seem to fit that purpose. Can you tell us yeah. a little bit the difference between charters before we talk more about them? Sure. So the original idea for charter schools, as you mentioned, Albert Schenker, who was the former president of the American Federation of Teachers, he was one of the early pioneers of charter schools. And as you said, the idea was creating these laboratories that would work in conjunction with the traditional public school districts. So they would be laboratories to try out curriculum and pedagogy that wouldn't necessarily be allowed in the traditional district because of some of the red tape, I guess, that would make it harder. But the idea was that a charter school could then, they found something really worked well, they could then integrate it back into the traditional public school. So they were supposed to be partners. Over time, however, the concept of charter schools, I guess you could say, got co-opted and there became like a different vision of charters where it wasn't just about this collaboration to create like the best learning opportunities between charters and traditional public school districts, but more of a Milton Friedman view bringing in economics and competition and that charters could be competitors to the traditional public school district. And that if you create this marketplace, a portfolio model of schools, the best schools will prevail and the bad schools will close. And the idea there is that parents are going to be voting with their feet. So it puts a lot of emphasis on parents know best and they will find the school that makes sense for their kids. They'll pick the good schools. But the problem is there isn't, in a lot of states, there isn't really a guideline, I guess, or a rubric to assess the good schools. So, and and I'm going to also have to just preface this, that the way many states evaluate schools is based off of test scores, which I'm sure we can all agree is probably not the best way to assess a school and that a lot can get missed and go undetected when you just focus on test scores. But if we're just going to go on test scores for a second, many states don't have necessarily, and definitely not Michigan, a system in place that ranks schools. So families don't really know what they're choosing between because there's no system in place, at least in Michigan, that gives parents some idea of how schools are doing. But the second issue, as I was starting to say, is that choice doesn't take place in a vacuum and that in Michigan, at least, charter schools, their buses aren't provided. So if you live in a neighborhood, you can't necessarily get to that good choice that's across the city. And maybe you're not choosing a school based off of the test scores anyways. Maybe you're choosing it because it's close to where you work or it's close to it has a good after school program. It has a good sports team. There are a lot of other things that go into this choice. And so when charter school advocates initially pushed for charters in in that competition model, they were saying that the the bad schools were going to close. But when you actually look at how families are choosing schools, bad schools have been able to prevail because almost the, the market's almost too saturated and there's not really a good, 
I guess, litmus to understand how, how, to, how to choose schools? Yeah, I think the problem with the, that economic model, the Milton Friedman model, is it treats schools as if they're groceries, right? That going and just buying a product in the marketplace is the exact same for schools, but it's not. And part of the reason is because, like you said, actually evaluating schools is so complex. Because if you just use test scores, as some states have done with A through F models, they use test scores, you tend to also get all of the noise of the social and economic factors, for example, of a student body in a neighborhood. And so you could actually have teachers and doing a tremendous work and succeeding in amazing ways. And they're always they're never going to be above a C under any circumstances. Ben Felder talked a little bit about that in one of our earlier episodes, and he's an education reporter. So you two should be friends. We'll introduce you. Okay. Um, David Berliner was also talking about this on a previous episode too, the mm -hmm. danger of, of using just test scores for the socioeconomic status impact. Because there's so much that if you have a, a kid who comes from a home who has two college educated parents, they don't have financial problems or issues, there's going to, some of that is likely over the course of an entire school to reflect itself in the test scores, even when students are showing growth, which by the way, one of the big issues that came out of Betsy DeVos's hearing was that she didn't seem to show an understanding of the difference between proficiency and growth. That if you measure by growth, a school where students are starting from a, a place where they may be a little bit behind on this or that academic subject, even if that's measured correctly, that if they show growth, the school is showing it's doing a good job. But if you just do it by proficiency, it's unlikely to kind of show what the teachers are really doing in the school effectively. So it can be complicated, right? Yeah, no, definitely. Ms. DeVos brings up the point often, and one of the reasons she advocates for school choice is this belief that wealthy families have have choice, that they can send their kids to their local public school, but they could also pick a religious school or they could pick a, a private school. And so the idea of bringing charters or school choice to urban population like Detroit, a predominantly African-American, predominantly low-income neighborhood, is that they're giving them this, the choices that a wealthier family could have. I think something to point out there, though, is that wealthier neighborhoods also just have the luxury of a good public school. How you were saying no one talks about the bad suburban public schools, or that being in crisis, that higher-income suburbs around Detroit they just, families, they have good public schools that they can choose from. And so it, you could almost counter Ms. DeVos's belief by saying, well, why can't low-income families also have just a stable, traditional public school that they can go to? What if they don't want that choice? What if they want to just be able to choose what's, what's closest to them? And having a choice in your neighborhood, which is, I think, one of the, the big problems, right? Even with School integration efforts, often one of the problems that uh, parents and communities of color had is that even when their kids were getting a better education, they were having to get bussed out of their neighborhoods across town. And there was a real desire to have, by some parents, to have a, a good quality school in their neighborhood. We came into contact with your work because you wrote a fantastic article for Vice titled Out of Options, School Choice Gutted Detroit's Public Schools, The Rest of the Country is Next. Pretty foreboding title. <laughs> <laughs> Can you tell us about what you learned in writing that article? Sure. So the goal of the article was to look at Detroit's education landscape, which is kind of a mess, but it has seen just tremendous growth of charter schools 
to the point where over 50% of the students in the city are attending a charter school. But that doesn't necessarily mean that they're attending a better school. So if you look at the data, the charters in the city, and again, if we're focusing on test scores, charters in the city aren't really doing that much better than the traditional public schools. I've also written separately about some kind of just like school culture issues within some of the charter schools that that's, I mean, that didn't even get into this piece. But same time that Michigan created its charter school law, they also reevaluated their school finance formula and they passed something called Proposal A, which just has money follow students. And so that means that every student, let's say, is allotted $8,000 and that $8,000, it doesn't go to private schools, but it would go to any charter school or traditional public school or if a kid went to a traditional public school in another district, it would follow that other district, so a suburban school. And when that passed originally, it was kind of celebrated as a good thing because districts had been receiving school funding based off of uh, property taxes. And so a city like Detroit, it had been losing its population, values of property was going down. And so the district was struggling financially. But Proposal A, in conjunction with passing charter school law and now having funds follow students and all of a sudden all these so many options, it created its own set of problems for Detroit public schools because it still meant that funds were going to be leaving the district. Because again, as we talked about, choice doesn't happen in a vacuum. There isn't really a system in place to evaluate what the best schools are. And so if a charter school crops up in your neighborhood, maybe you're going to attend that school. Also, DPS schools, I mean, they weren't the best at this point either. I'm not trying to cherry coat what DPS looked like. It had its own share of struggles. But this definitely created what Professor Hammer at Wayne State University describes as a negative feedback loop, which is where, let's say, a student leaves to go to a charter school or a school in another district. That means $7,000 is gone from DPS. But because funding, you don't just get $7,000, overhead costs like heating a building or paying for a teacher don't just drop because you lose a student. And so the school's going to have to make cuts or the district is going to have to make cuts in other regards. So they might get rid of arts or they might get rid of a teacher, get rid of a social worker. So they're making cuts that actually kind of degrade the schooling experience, which would maybe make more families want to leave the district which would then make the district lose more money and then have to make more cuts. So it can kind of just keep going on. It's like a death spiral. Death by a thousand cuts is what Professor Hammer had, had called it. So is Proposal A different from vouchers or would that be We don't similar? have vouchers. We do not have vouchers in Michigan. Betsy DeVos and her husband, Dick, uh, they pushed to get vouchers passed in 2000. But Michigan voted overwhelmingly against the ballot proposal. And after that happened, Ms. DeVos created the Great Lakes Education Project, which is a school choice advocacy group that she up until recently sat on the board of. She's definitely bankrolled it. And they are very much a push for school choice and charter schools. But they also, their goal right now, and their four is kind of a goal to get vouchers, is to rewrite Michigan's constitution to allow money to go to private schools. So that's the difference between vouchers and charter schools. With vouchers, money can also go to private schools. Yes. So, yes, 
Kirk Ayette, a writer for the Detroit Metro Times, or he used to be, he's kind of one of the people who broke the Flint water crisis story. He wrote an amazing piece in 1996, so right after charters started in Michigan, that actually looked at the DeVos family and how they had been a part of the creation of the charter school law in Michigan. And what Kurt found is he spoke to other advocacy groups that the DeVos family were funding at the time, and they were pushing for vouchers. They wanted to find a way to bring vouchers to Michigan. And Kurt explains it so well, but the way he says says it is that in order to make voucher schools more appealing to the public, there needed to be two things. There needed to, A, create this narrative of public schools in crisis, because why else would you be willing to give public dollars to a private school unless the public schools were completely completely failing? So one thing was that there was this like push then to create this crisis narrative. But the other thing that happened was making sure that charter schools, Kurt describes it as blurring the lines between public and private, because charter schools, you have public dollars, but you have private management. And so if you kind of blur that line over time, people might feel more comfortable eventually going with a voucher school. So I think that describes it pretty well. That's one of the things that always confuses me about charter schools is that they are like this weird public private entity. They're public that any students can go to them, but they're not answerable to the community, which seems to be a big issue. And that's one of the things about public schools where they are answerable to the community because you have that school board. But instead, you know, it's a private institution. And so parents don't really seem to have, you know, as much influence in a a charter school as they could in a public school. Yeah, I would, I would agree. I think that's, that is definitely fair. Um, I just looked up the board meet. So Miss DeVos and her husband, they created a charter school in Grand Rapids, the West Michigan Aviation Academy. They started in 2010. And I just happened today to look at their website and the the board meeting minutes that they have and their board meeting schedule. And it's scheduled for once a month, like all board meetings, but at 8 a.m. on a school day, on a at the Amway headquarters. So it's not even on the school's campus. So that would make it incredibly difficult for A, a teacher to go. I mean, most teachers, as you know, would be teaching at that time. But it also, at 8 a.m., it makes it kind of hard for parents to go. So there's this this kind of a a lot of, I guess, hoops that families would need to go to to be involved with that board and the decisions being made. And unsurprisingly, there were no public comments mentioned in those board meeting minutes. We'll give them one thing for branding because I kind of want to go to an aviation academy. <laughs> Do you get fun. sunglasses when you get there? Because that's all I want. I kind of <laughs> feel I was just assuming it was like space camp. Ooh. I, I don't know too much about it, but it does sound cool. I would agree. I'm sure that it's like regular school in many ways and you have to learn lots of things unrelated to flying, right. which I'm actually kind of a little scared of sometimes. So I don't know why I want to go there. <laughs> So Betsy DeVos is potentially going to be the secretary of education by the time some people listen to this, she may already be confirmed. What can we potentially learn about, you know, the way she's approached? I mean, did the, her answers in the hearing that we played previously surprise you at all? I think the most surprising thing was, I mean, obviously she stuck really closely to her, the ideology and like pushing of school choice. 
but her lack of knowledge on some of the other issues, issues that you've already discussed um, when you were playing the intro, I think could be proved to be a little scary for most people who are watching that because obviously the job is more than just being a proponent of school choice and an advocate of school choice. She's in charge of much more than just pushing more yeah, choices. I thought the IDEA answer of all the answers was in, kind of incredible because it's probably the most influential piece of legislation on education. More so, I would say, than ESSA or any of the other testing laws because those have been you know, kind of changed over the years and continue to change. But IDEA has been foundational for a while now. Yeah. So I, I thought that was surprising. So what else what else do you think people across from other states that are not from Michigan should understand about a potentially a potential DeVos led Department of Education? I mean, I think the thing is we don't really know how she would go about her position yet. It's a it's a bit unclear. She hasn't given any interviews prior to this confirmation, but I think, you know, their questions I mean, Arnie Duncan and John King were both very much for school choice as well. So this isn't exactly anything new. I think the bigger fear is just that un- unregulated school choice. The clip you played where it talked about in- accountability for any school that receives public funding. You know, it's unclear the accountability that Ms. DeVos supports in Michigan in Michigan, we just passed new legislation. DPS had had its debt had just skyrocketed, which is something that I discuss in the article. And a, a part of the reason why the debt skyrocketed was because enrollment dropped. Enrollment is tied to school funding, and so they were just losing tons of funding every year. But when that legislation passed, there was some discussion about addressing Michigan's or Detroit's chaotic school landscape. And there was an idea about a Detroit Education Commission that would oversee school openings and closings. And the Great Lakes Education Project, which Ms. DeVos funds and sat on the board of at the time, they fought really hard to nix the DEC so that they were successful in the end. The New York Times did a good job of reporting on that. I don't understand. Like if the whole thing is to bring accountability, why would you there- stop charter schools being accountable? Their argument was that the legis- the DEC had a priority or had a obligation to stabilize DPS and that it would hurt charter schools if they had that to. it would go after charter schools. To stabilize DPS, which is just, I mean, a, if your point, if your goal is just making sure good schools exist, it's okay to get rid of some of those bad charter schools. But they, they stood behind another piece of legislation instead, which I recently just wrote about for The Atlantic. And that legislation, we did like a breakdown of the actual law. So we went provision by provision, looking at what it said. And it's accountability, but it's accountability with a lot of loopholes. Advocates of Ms. DeVos say that she supports accountability because this law has automatic closures for failing charter schools. But if you look at the actual provision, it says that the closures rests in the hand of the school's sponsor. And in Michigan, every sponsor gets 3% of the per pupil funding. They have an incentive to keep as many schools open. So there's just some kind of flexibility there that doesn't really make sense if you're really about being serious about getting rid of failing schools. I think the problem in education sometimes is that our ideologies about what we think should happen can cloud our ability to, you know, seek 
actually everyone having a um, great education. I believe, I'm sure many people that believe in school choice do believe that that's a way to get better school options for kids. And I mm-hmm. think public school advocates believe the same thing, that a, fa- a, a solid public education system is the best way forward. But the problem is when we get so entrenched in our beliefs, then we start worrying about things like, well, what if accountability shows our charter schools aren't as good as we say they are? Right. And so then all of a sudden you've lost your whole reason you wanted charter schools unless you have some other diabolical purpose, which I think, by the way, is out there too. There are in the, a lot of the for-profit schemes that exist in education. And so I think it's important for all of us to want to sit back and learn because there's no question that some kids are in schools where they don't get the opportunities they should have in public schools. And we should care about that. But there's also a lot of evidence that charter schools are not doing what they claim to be able to do. And so if that's the case, we should be very wary of abandoning a a public education system. So I don't know. How do we get out of our ideological trenches and and investigate evidence, which was, I think, what I would have liked to have seen more of in the hearing? Yeah, I mean, I agree with that. I think the the thing is, it's not you're not against charters. You're not against public schools. You, You should be just for good schools. I mean, that. I think good charter schools can exist. So I'm not against it. I think the point of the vice piece, though, was to point out how too many options and investing in these new options as opposed to investing what it what does already exist can really hurt the traditional public schools because funding is going elsewhere. And you did a tremendous job in that by also sharing personal stories, which is which is why I really recommend um, you, you know, pointing out the feed negative feedback loop was powerful but especially when accompanied by the personal stories of families who are still in those public schools who are struggling, you know, to find a great education for their children. Mm-hmm. Thank you. We'll make sure to, uh, to link that in, in our cool. show notes. So our listeners can definitely, you know, read the whole thing firsthand. Mm-hmm. Awesome. Well, listen, Allie Gross, thank you so much for joining us today. Thank you for having me. Thank you guys. So where can our listeners find you and your work online? Sure. You can connect with me on Twitter at Allie, A-L-L-I-E, underscore Elizabeth with an S instead of a Z. And then uh, my work is on my website. So alisongross.com. Post all my stories there. Great. We will definitely share out your work. And again, I highly recommend that Vice piece, which is very relevant to understanding some of these issues. And the Atlantic Um, piece sounds interesting too. Absolutely. We'll, We'll share the, we'll get all of these articles and share them all out. Um, and we hope to continue this discussion online and in other spaces. So at the Visions of Education podcast, we're all about sharing the learning. If you're doing something creative in education, tweet us at Visions of Ed. Also, we're on Facebook too, so you can talk to us there. And if you haven't already, subscribe to Visions of Education on iTunes, Stitcher, or Google Play. Your choice. If you write us a five-star review, then we will read it on the air. Michael, Go. So we have three five-star reviews, which is very exciting. One says, good listen from KRK Libraries Rule. And says, Michael's mom told me to listen and she was right. Great podcast for everyone in education. (laughs) Keep going, mom. Thank you. Michael is great. This is really strange. I feel like my mother's fan club has signed up. Uh, Michael is funny and smart. And I'm not just saying that. That makes me really awkward reading that on the air. And solid from Ganabaruzo74, a good balance of content and banter. Uh, Michael's mom likes our banter, another connection. So please leave us reviews because that helps more people find this podcast. You can find me on Twitter. I'm at Dan Kretka. And I'm at 42 Think Deep. 
Until next time, this is the Visions of Education podcast signing off. Someday you're going to get through that one without having to edit. It's a tough one. (laughs)